NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of the Lunatic Fringe podcast and a special treat, a fellow podcaster on the other end of the line. I not only get to talk skydiving, but about talking about talking about skydiving. Who the hell are you and what the fuck do you do? Hey, Dean. Thanks for having me. I'm James LeBarry. And what do I do? I own a marketing agency that does quite a bit of work in the skydiving world and other worlds beyond. Uh, so, you know, that that's... The simple, quick answer nice. uh, in, in what I'm doing these days. So you've got a, a toe dipped into the real world and into our world. Yeah. Yes, very much. That's, uh, is it a weird balancing act? It's not. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to get the same results sure. for, for our skydiving clients and clients outside 
uh, of the sport. You know, we need more site traffic. We need we need more uh, more leads. We need more sales. And so that that's what we try to do. Whoever thought the world would be reduced down to clicks? Yeah, I know it's sad. <laughs> oh man! Luckily, uh, when especially when you're approaching something like skydiving, at least we've got really cool stuff for people to click on, right? No doubt. You know, outside of skydiving, you're struggling to get good photography within skydiving. You know, our clients within you, you've got the you know incredible visuals, yeah, uh, to play with. So yeah, the uh, our, we have our our sort of sub our our business name is beyond marketing and uh within the skydiving industry we are drop zone marketing powered by beyond the beyond marketing brand works with a lot of industries outside uh, of the sport um and lately doing a lot more in the green energy space nice yeah so this is obviously something that you did uh as a profession but did this predate skydiving or was skydiving first for you yeah you know in a way i was born into it uh to a degree um, my mix of of or approach to marketing is the marriage of uh, good marketing, but word of mouth marketing and being strategic about word of mouth, which means treating people well. I often look at marketing or poor marketing is trying to target the brain and great marketing is trying to get resonance in the heart. Sure. So I, I was raised in the Caribbean. My father is born and raised in Antigua. Okay. Uh, my mother is British and, um, uh, you know, I was born in London, left when I was about six months old, uh, raised in the Caribbean on a hotel. So <laughs> really? my, my parents ran a, a hotel in a four-star French restaurant. Wow. And so what I observed is, uh, you know, in a tiny country that's 12 miles long and nine miles wide with essentially one industry, which is tourism, that... If you're going to get ahead when you've got 100 competitors on an island that's that small uh, to gain business, it's got to be a little bit more than advertising. And as it turns out, it's how you treat people. Sure. So it's sort of how I uh, it's sort of the base or the foundation of, of what we do with our clients is, yeah, we do websites and, yeah, we do SEO and all those things. But that little something extra is. Let's think about every touch point that your customers are doing, whatever your business, and think about how do we exceed expectations. Mm. And so that that was really my whole life growing up in Antigua is how do we make people like how it's really down to details. How do we pay attention to the details and think about the emotional aspect of of people? And that's really what helped me so much. Uh, in running a drop zone. So I ran a drop zone for 10 years, skydive Carolina, uh, just South of Charlotte and grew that drop zone 20 to 30% year over year. I also owned the video concession while I was there, uh, for six years, I think it was, but the bottom line was I knew I needed more, more business. Mm. You know, it, it was slow going in those, it, when I started there, I think it was 2000 beginning of 2003 right after el nino of 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 02 and it was just like you know decimated the drop zone in 02 with just weather every weekend and i came in in, in 2003 and how i even came into skydiving is kind of wild but uh you know i just really had that mentality of bridging the gap of going okay i know that the skydive is the cherry on the top that we all think about uh, you know, and people leave glowing, but what if I could blow people away before they got on the airplane? Sure. 
in, in terms of our attention to detail. So, so yeah, I'm not even sure how I got there. The long and short is um, me being raised in a tourism focused uh, country really influence how I do business, either as a drop zone manager, business owner, uh, you know, that type of thing. Well, and something with like skydiving where the general public isn't just looking for um, a fun place to go. They're looking for that attention to detail because they know that they're putting their lives in someone else's hands. You kind of want to go to someplace that's got their shit together. 100%. You know, I like <laughs> to think of it. I like to think of it as what we need more of is empathy. Sure. And I, I often, for those that are listening, I just took off my glasses and I'm, I'm putting my glasses on now thinking of how I was the first time when I went to a drop zone. And it was, I was scared, yeah, you know, super nervous. Uh, and, and I, and I think about just my heart beating out of my chest, just driving past the road sign out at the front before going into the parking lot. And, and that's where, where sort of we need to take ourselves as drop zone operators is, you know, when we look through the lens of that place, that drop zone where we are there every single day, we are completely disconnected of how we were when we arrived there for the very first time. Sure. And it's so important to think back to that very first time. Oh, yeah. And, and then with that empathy going, OK, this is kind of what we should try to do. What emotional state do we are they in? And what do, emotional state do we want them to be in? And what do we need to do to bridge that gap? Sure. Well, it's funny because we kind of glorify the uh, the whole Fandango reputation that mm -hmm. skydiving had. And I look back fondly now at some of the horrifying operations or airplanes that I've been in uh, in a very romantic way. But I also was there as an experienced skydiver. And the first place that I went was a relatively professional, well-run operation. Uh, so I didn't have to, you know, walk into the hangar with the, you know, the guy that looked like he had been up for three days. And granted, I'd climbed into a, a duct tape 206, but that was after the fact, right? So looking back now, had I been a first time student walking into a place like that, I don't know that I would have been too cool with making that first jump. You know, it's, it's, we find ourselves in an interesting period, right? Because old school jumpers miss that, you know, it, it was, there was no fluff. It was, it was real. The experience was real. That bonfire experience is what, what brings the community together. And now we're in this world of Everything costs so much. If you want to be a turban DZ oh. and the associated costs with that, like, hey, all all the all the charming aspects of skydiving, uh, we need to graduate from a little bit if we're wanting to maintain this type of aircraft and and maintain the students coming in that are raving when benchmarked against other things, whether it be the rich Richard Preddy driving experience or the various driving experiences out there or whatever, it's all sure. top notch, Sure, you know? So it's, it's interesting to watch the identity of skydiving change for good or for bad, depending on who you are. Uh, you know, as we evolve into what is now a very expensive business. Oh yeah. I mean, when I started, you were able to piecemeal together uh, a jumpsuit and altimeter and even a complete rig at a relatively reasonable price. I mean, if you told somebody um, that you had to spend $2,500 uh, to be able to go out and be a skydiver with all the equipment that you'd need, they might go, ooh, but they wouldn't think that's ridiculous. And now to do the same thing with new equipment, you have to practically take out a fucking car loan 
I mean, knowing that I could to have the equipment that I've become accustomed to jumping for 28 years, spend $10,000 on a new rig is absolutely mind blowing. It, don't get me wrong. It's incredible equipment, but holy shit, man, it's, it's changed, you know, and, and along with it, the entire sport, you know, we went from the dirt bag era when I started where the dirtier, the jumpsuit and the more torn up your rig, clearly the more badass skydiver you must be to now looking like you're getting ready to climb into an F1, uh, car, <laughs> you know, to go out and make a fun jump. And I like it. Don't get me wrong, but it also is a dramatic departure from what I remember. Yes, no doubt about it. it I've, as you were just saying that, I was thinking about our, a mutual friend of ours and Doug Smith at CSC. You know, I know, I don't know if he's still doing it, but he was where you could finance like using Klarna or a firm or one of those things to pay for your tandem or to pay for this or that. Like, it's just a, a different world. And yeah. I certainly appreciate his creativity to, to he's, try you know, and make sure that there's no friction in getting in there. Speaking of CSC, um, he had a lot of great things the, that he had either been thinking of or started when I was working with him back in the day, one of which was the ProPass, which was an incredible idea for people looking to try and gain experience over a, a season and really crank up jump numbers or you know just those super motivated folks. And he would sell a bulk uh, rate ticket that like you put down this much money and you get on every single load that you can. And I thought that that was just an amazing thing. He's done quite a few things that are like that. And I know that a lot of people have mirrored him since because he had people from all around the world coming to jump at his place. I mean, that's pretty cool. Doug's always been forward thinking, whether it's yeah. solar panels on on the top of his, not just some solar panels. I mean, one major solar farm on the roof of his hangar to I've always appreciated the banquets that he does in, in that hangar and the off-season generating revenue. I mean, he's just, uh, you got to give him his due. He's he's really thinking differently, trying to make it work. Sure, uh, sure. In, in every aspect, it's impressive. I didn't, I didn't get to take too much advantage of the new stuff in Rochelle. I only did the very first season there before I actually, funny enough, moved to the uh, the Caribbean to fly for Seaborne Airlines out of St. Oh, Croix wow. for a couple of years. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. So, so did you uh, fly? Oh, Seaborne. Okay. I was thinking, yeah, yeah. So I, was thinking I, I Winner. No, no. I went from flying the Twin Otter for Doug to flying a Twin Otter for Seaborne uh, in between San Juan and and St. Thomas, and and uh, we did a bit of the BVIs and and uh, uh, but not too far down island. That is really fun flying. I have to believe it. You know, it was and it wasn't because we were the only. Um, airline uh that was uh flying vfr flight plans literally the only a 121 airline in the world that was doing it but that didn't mean we didn't fly through the shit and i'll never forget a previous jump pilot actually was my captain and i was flying the leg uh 1500 feet off the water at night in a storm with on a vfr flight plan with him going yeah just follow the line it'll be fine those those island boys, fuck me, man. They got some balls. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 still wild out there. I growing up, uh, <laughs> growing up, we didn't really have any orthodontists in Antigua, and mm. I had ter terrible buck teeth. And uh, we would fly to Puerto Rico almost monthly for three years for me to see an orthodontist. Wow! And the way that we would go there is on a Twin Otter on an, on an airline uh, called Liat. 
yeah, uh, which was the Leeward Islands air transport. And we would have to puddle jump one island to the next. And I always remember even being young, being, you know, frightened flying into the island of Dominica because you are literally flying through rainforest and just, you know, mountains. And, and, and what's wild about that region, too, is the topography from one island, even though all the islands are so close, are so different. Yeah. That, uh, you know, it's just everything is is a little bit different, um, you know, with, with the environments there. But, yeah, we used to puddle jump three, four, five islands. We leave at five in the morning. And by late morning, we'd finally land in, in Puerto Rico to go yeah, on yeah. this orthodontic adventure and come right back the, the very same afternoon. It was that's crazy, it right? Yeah, it, was, it was pretty it, crazy. It was kind of funny because that was my first departure from skydiving after many, many years of uh, being a jumper and then a jump pilot. And I decided, like a lot of us do, maybe I should at least try and check off the box to the real world and go be a, quote, real pilot. Um, and I did two years in that airline, which was <laughs> as far from an airline as you could imagine. But I remember thinking about halfway through my time there, that the locals, the Crusians that would fly for work to and from St. Thomas every single workday were like skydivers. They didn't even think twice about the shit we'd be flying through. We'd literally be going through weather that had my hair standing on end and I'm in the cockpit and there's Crusians in the back passed out sound asleep. Like whatever, we do this shit all the time. And it was like <laughs> hardened jumpers, you know, old school jumpers that that's just how you get around. Yeah. It's that or half a day, you know, 20 minutes flight or half a day on a boat. Yeah. Yeah. It It, it is wild. There's a, there's a bit of a gap right now. It's struck. It's we need, we need another airline to come in that area. It's hard to, to move around the Caribbean right now since Liat basically is defunct and Seaborn has limited operations, I think. Yeah. They uh, got rid of their twin otter fleet because they went to a, a different aircraft and, and uh, all the salty old dogs that had been out there forever pissed off because, you know, mm -hmm. They they became a, a legitimate airline and that wasn't fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speaking of, you said that uh, your uh, entrance into skydiving is a bit of a story. So how did that happen? Yeah. So what what brought me to America really was was I had an early penchant or talent for golf, and I had uh, this desire to see where I could take that, and uh, I ended up coming to high school living with. Uh, with the one American in my family who lived in South Carolina and lived with them for three years playing golf and, and almost sort of being on a junior golf tour, traveling all over the place, got a, uh, a scholarship to a school in Charlotte, North Carolina, played four years of college golf. And then after that became a golf pro, uh, at a, at a local club, not good enough to, to be playing on the PGA tour or even mini tours as I quickly realized as that that's a, a whole nother level. But as a as a club pro, I was often giving lessons and our driving range had lights. And it was about 8, 39 o'clock. I mean, I remember this so vividly. This is around 2000. And uh, I remember seeing this old, I think it was a Chevy Astro van. And on the side of it parked in the clubhouse in, 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 at the golf club said Skydive Carolina Parachute Center with this really old school logo. Hmm. And I remembered I had a, a childhood friend from Antigua who had done a tandem in Australia. And I was like, man, I am so scared of this, but I know her. If she can do it, I can do it. And I left my business card on the front windshield of this 
old beat up Astro van, which still is driving around that drop zone today and just said, Hey, I'm interested. Would you leave a, a brochure in the pro shop? And, uh, when I came back in from a lesson, I, there was a brochure and also a note saying, Hey, I'm actually really interested in golf lessons. I've been, I've been struggling at golf for 19 years. <laughs> and that moment, I mean, I, you know, if, on my podcast, I'd like to talk about crossroads moments that, that me placing the business card on the windshield was the crossroads moment for me, because had I not done that action, I'm not sure where my life is today. Mm. So fast forward, you know, I make a tandem skydive with my friend, Danny Smith, who's now my golf student. And I just, you know, like everybody, I, I landed from that jump and I was like, I have got to do this again. <laughs> and uh, Danny was happy. His The DZO of Skydive Carolina, Danny Smith, has been the DZO there for over, I think, 35, six, seven years ish. So he's been, you know, it's been going since 1986. He was very happy with, you know, our cadence of, of teaching. And on our third playing lesson, he got a hole in one. <laughs> and that sort of just sealed it. Now, pure luck. He gives me more credit but uh, than I should get. But suddenly we had a relationship. And through the course of three years, I we had a barter trade. I That's was awesome. teaching him golf and he was allowing me to come down to the DZ and jump for as, as much as I wanted. Wow. So I went through AFF and then, you know, uh, as a licensed scout, I was just down there as much as I could when I wasn't at the golf club. And then um, my uh, it became very political at, at my golf club. And I was on a on a work visa, a a, uh, a uh, I can't remember. I think it was a whatever the work visa was sure. and uh, H1B is what it was. And I was tied to the golf club and through some, po some politics and drama, I became so fed up there that I decided that I would leave. But I was, it was pretty scary because certainly then golf pros were a dime a dozen. Would someone pick up my, you know, my visa? Cause there, there is some financial aspects that the club would need to pick up. So I go down to the PGA trade show uh, down in Orlando and I take Danny with me because he's such a golf junkie. And this trade show is enormous. I mean, anything and everything that has anything to do with golf is there. And I took so many interviews, interview after interview after interview, and I got nothing. Nobody <laughs> wanted to talk to me. You know, I was just too much trouble with my paperwork and, and baggage. Sure. And, uh, you know, I'm dejected. I'm certain that I'm going to have to go back to Antigua, which is not the worst thing, but it, it means a life, you know, probably going to be on a boat or as a tour guide or running, you know, a tourism operated business, not the worst thing, but it's not what I wanted to do. Sure. So we're driving back up. And like I mentioned, you know, this was too, by this time, 2002, we had, Danny had had the worst weather, you know, with El Nino and. I'm totally dejected. And he's like, look, I need some help. You know, I need some help to, to help me breathe some life back into this drop zone. You know, do you want to come work for me? And, you know, it was for a very little amount of money at the time. And, but it was a lifeline. Sure. It's like, yes. Sure. So, you know, I, I jumped on that opportunity and I viewed the drop zone working there almost like I viewed running a club. 
is all the fund jumpers, they're, they're my members and I need to take care of my membership. And, you know, I need, I need to get more rounds of golf. I need more skydives to be made by tandems. And that was the mentality. And then let me mix in this whole thing from being raised in the Caribbean of let's try and blow people away by how well we treat them. Sure. Um, and not just be like being polite and nice, but like, let's make this scientific. Like how many interactions are there between booking a tandem and, and driving out the door? Most drop zones is 43 points of interaction. So I'm like, oh, okay, we got hmm. some work to do. We got to, you know, we got to, we got to improve. There's a lot of areas for improvement. And that's kind of how it went. You know, it's funny that uh, golf was your lifeline into skydiving for a number of reasons. One, because that was always the old joke. If you're no good at skydiving, you better take up <laughs> golf, right? <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny that golf is what you got you into it. That and yeah. some of my favorite memories uh, in skydiving uh, from Cross Keys, which, of course, I've talked about a billion times on the podcast. Every Friday, we were allowed to swoop uh, the 18th green at the golf course that butted up against the landing area at Cross Keys. And we were fucking rock stars. If you were one of the ones that got to land there, you'd swoop wherever you could uh, and then gather up for a full meal and drinks on everybody until you were just stumbling out of there. And so it was always kind of funny what uh, a, a wonderful marriage of convenience it was in, in skydiving with golf. And my dad, uh, being the same, was actually a, a, a club pro and used to be a PGA oh. course raider. So I've had the opportunity okay. to to carry his clubs around Spyglass when he was doing his course rating because he needs to rate, you know, Spyglass for fuck's sake. And for anybody that doesn't know Spyglass, look it up it's, online. It's primo. Primo. Oh, it's just, it's amazing. So I've always had a, a, a very uh, unique love between both sports, even though I'm not a particularly good golfer. See, I did not know that about you. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, um, my only foray into actually trying to play golf at any type of a competitive level. I was quite young and my dad entered me into a competition. I had absolutely no uh, no reason to be in and I woofed my tee shot announced the name announced the club I represent and fucking just missed it completely because so, I was <laughs> so worked up and oh man yeah I mean golf is a whole different kind of beast <laughs> it's a mental game that's yeah. all it is it's purely mental really more than anything and if anything, that actually ties it into skydiving, though, right? Because the the basics behind skydiving, the physicality of skydiving is not particularly difficult. You don't have to be a hardcore athlete to be a successful skydiver, but you have to be able to keep your head straight. And yeah. just like just like golf, it's a mental game. Yeah. Staying in the present. Key. Yeah. Key at the door. Key, key you know, on the tee. Yes. Sure. Yes, yes. Well, that that living in the moment is is something that uh, I definitely learned from skydiving for sure. Um, but I suppose you could get that as well to golf because that's probably why I sucked at golf because I was I could never keep my head on. All right, bend the knees, elbows straight, look at the ball, follow through, all that shit, man. It just never stuck. Uh, and and now too much analysis leading to paralysis. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that and the fact that uh, I had a dad that could tell you to within five yards where he was going to put the ball every time. Not uh, not a little pressure, a whole lot of pressure. You know, it was tough. <laughs> so we have another thing in common, um, which was still to this day, in my opinion, the coolest magazine ever to see print for skydiving, which was Blue Skies. So you wrote for Blue Skies for uh, uh, quite a time as well. How did that start? How did that start? That's a great question. Um, 
obviously it was with Cola and Lara uh, uh, asking if I would at the time, I think this was what it was, is I used to put out a newsletter that would go out to most every DZO and DZM in the country. And I would, you know, write just a lot about various different techniques for marketing or business. And and I think that I was brought in or, or invited to write as the antithesis maybe to you in in being. <laughs> <laughs> in, I love in, that. In, <laughs> I mean, I they haven't told me that, but our obviously and I think my my article, I think, was always like two pages away from you. And it's like, yeah, here's this sort of straight laced business guy you know, talking about ways you could bring more revenue to your drop zone. And and then two pages over, there was was your perspective uh, coming from the fucking pilot. So uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. I had a, I had a blast uh, doing it. I, I always felt like, you know, I was maybe a little bit out of place. It's like, are you guys sure you want me, you know, writing, you know, and I, and I always try to make it light and humorous. I, I you know, I, I get what it's about. But at the same time, uh, you know, trying to provide value for the DZO DZM, which is, you know, just a very small corner of their readership. But sure. uh, I was honored that they asked me to do it. Well, that was one of the wonderful things about the way that they did that magazine, right? Is they took uh, the best of the um, the parachutist kind of mentality and the best of the skydiving mag magazine uh, mentality and put their own spin to it. And they catered to a group of skydivers that maybe had gone um, unattended up until then. Uh, they, you know, parachutists would never talk about base jumping at all. And I understand why. Um, and skydiving magazine would kind of go too far the other direction. And Lauren Cola found that wonderful balance in the middle. And they'd have people like you writing um, that would give a more leveled perspective. And then they'd have me getting hate mail for the magazine. <laughs> Every once in a while, because I maybe crossed the line here and there. But it was it was just a lot of fun. Like you got your magazine. And even though I wrote for them for 10 years, every time I got the magazine, I was excited to flip through it and read through it and see the amazing imagery and and all that stuff. And I mean, it was kind of funny. And you'll know this as well. You'd pick up that magazine and I forget how long they did the breast cancer awareness thing. And you'd open up a skydiving magazine owned and managed by two women. And the first thing you'd see is boobs. I mean, and then Cola would be stoking the fire going, talk more shit, say more about boobs. <laughs> you know, to the, to their credit, they knew their audience. <laughs> yep. And and the 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 different types of people within our audience and they catered to all of those different types of people with you know, folks like me, folks like you. Um, you Absolutely. know, yeah, they I miss that. That that was I remember too when it came out, it was you know, I think it was shortly after skydiving magazine ended and there was a there was a gap you know yeah. it's like we were missing the voice of the skydiver and they were the voice of the skydiver through all their their various different writers it was really fresh I, i'm sorry that it's not around anymore yeah, it was so much fun. And I mean, it definitely had its time, I guess, uh, for as bummed as I am that I don't get to write for them anymore. It's also become a pretty politically charged world in mm -hmm. which the fucking pilots articles probably don't sit so well. Like I would have had to change a lot of the joking stuff that I wrote about, um, which I would not have wanted to do. You know, I mean, all things in their time. And I, when I published the uh, the Lunatic Fringe book, and I was 
not only um, compiling it for the actual print version, but reading it for the audiobook. I had to, I was flinching. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that I A, wrote this shit and that someone printed it. You know, <laughs> it was hilarious. And and um, my favorite thing that Laura ever did was I had put out an article that really made um, uh, a reader angry. So much so that she wrote like a three-page essay on all the different reasons that she hated me. And Laura, wanting to make sure everybody's voice was heard, printed it. Published it. it. Yeah, it I was, remember that. And I, I loved that she did that because, first off, I thought my warped sense of humor, I thought it was absolutely hilarious that someone took the fucking pilot seriously. But I also really appreciated the fact that Laura, even being um pretty um on my side for most things, was like, nah, she's got some points. I'm going to print this shit. And it was great because it really showed that, hey, no, we're not a magazine that's going to shove anything down your throat. We'll absolutely hear all sides of it, which was great. Yeah, they were they they were awesome. Yeah, they were awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that, and, was, that and, was a good time. Well, and we talked before. Both of them have, have been uh, grinding it out in the sport for a long time, and and Cola is still going strong, and and she's been a rock star, a behind the scenes rock star in skydiving for as long as I've known her, which is since two thousand three. I think a lot of jumpers today, you know, if because of how many jumpers come in and they're in the sport hard for four to five years, and then there's an exit. And with that turnover, sometimes you miss some of the influential people. And Cola is one of those, certainly Lara as well with the magazine. But as I mentioned to you, I remember being at, at Rantoul in the early 2000s for the Freefall Convention. And I remember meeting uh, Cola then. Mm. And to me, you know, I was a young, young in the business. And I was trying to put together a boogie and I wanted to get performance designs to come and and the concept of that boogie was family of freaks so we were going to pull together the pink mafia the muff brothers the rodriguez brothers the uh you know all all the the misfit club fraternity sororities all into one boogie and you know here i am bebopping along you know just young little thing coming up to cola sort of you know i hope i hope you'll talk to me Will you talk to me? I have this idea. And, you know, she gave me the time. And, you know, long and short, we ended up putting on that boogie for a few years. And and that was a blast and and, and had such support from Cola. So I, I always remember her giving me time because she, you know, I remember the PD tent at, at, at where Freefall Convention was, you know, just slamming like crazy. Uh, and, you know, what, just to, to pivot even off of that, somebody that I had such respect for and is no longer with us is Pack and Kathy. I remember seeing Pack and Kathy packing just, uh, you know, tons of rigs, literally with a, like a, a kid on her back. I don't remember which kid it was uh, of her kids then, but just going, wow, that lady is so hardworking. She is so hard. And and to her dying day, one of the hardest working people I'd, I'd met in the sport. I, I'll tell you what, you kind of, uh, I did not realize that Kathy had passed. I hadn't heard. When did yeah. she pass? Uh, I want to say roughly two years ago-ish. Wow. In, uh, a, I believe it was a plane crash. No kidding. She had flown in 
to, I, I want to be careful because I, I don't want to get the, the details wrong, but if I'm not mistaken, she flew out from a meeting and uh, I believe her, her Cessna crashed. I, I don't know the details of why or what. Oh, but, that's a shame. Uh, yeah. I actually, yeah. Uh, I went down for a gig, funny enough for, for Doug. Um, I w flew his PAC 750 down to her operation uh, in Florida, uh, just uh, next to the Georgia line and uh was training her and i'm not sure if it was her boyfriend her, her husband i don't remember um but he was an airline pilot mm -hmm. and i was supposed to train him in the pack 750 to fly jumpers there and like a number of airline pilots that i've met before the concept of flying jumpers was uh a bit alien uh, and after a long weekend of trying to work with him i messaged doug saying I'm I'm just I can't sign him off in your plane. You're gonna have to sign him off. I won't do it. And any other DZO would be pretty pissed off at the training pilot that was bailing on her because I had to go back and fly for Doug for uh, for a long weekend. But Kathy gave me a big hug and went, "Okay, well we'll see if we can get Doug down to sign him off." She's a complete sweetheart. Um, and I remember being pretty guilty because I actually left um, quite late. Um, to go and, and fly the operations and Doug took my place and I'm a, it's a bit of a jab at him. He went and signed the guy off who the very first load on signed off all by himself, blew out both main tires because he stood on the brakes a mile down the runway. <laughs> oh. So, <laughs> so my, I might've been right about, but I, you know, <laughs> not saying I was, but I might've been. But yeah, she was an absolute sweetheart, man. That's a shame. I did not know that. That's a bummer. Yeah, you know she, uh, you know I, I, there there are various. Uh, I've heard so many different things about Pat and Kathy, but uh, you know, as as we all have have different things about us, but I just ha held her in high regard because she was incredibly nice to me. Bailed me out on a few of the boogies that we did. We we used to run a boogie called Carolina Fest. And in the early days of that, I remember that you know, we were really needing some packing support and she so helped us out, but always extremely sweet, very hardworking, you know, just gritty. And, um, you know, it, it's a shame she's not around anymore because she she uh, was a part of the fabric of our community and uh, and a strong voice. Sure. And, uh, I miss her. Yeah. I'm uh, uh it, it, it's kind of funny because you, you can look back and you and I both been in the sport for quite some time. You can look back and say we're kind of uh, losing a lot of the heroes in the sport and and uh, um, wondering, you know, where the good times have gone. But then I take a look around at what's going on. And although it's a bit more corporate, maybe or a bit more, I hate to use the word professional because I'd like to think we were always kind of professional. We just act more professional now. But looking around and especially doing the podcast, I discovered that there are just as many rock stars and heroes behind the scenes as there ever were. It's just that um, there's so much more PR for the people flying down the face of the mountains and doing all this incredible stuff that the little things kind of small fall through the cracks. Whereas before you'd get that reputation, but now a packing Kathy might be famous in her own little area, but the big names are what you're seeing on all Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and all that stuff. So I, I think they're still there. Uh, I, I know they're still there. It's just, it's a little bit harder to find the behind the scenes people. You know, I, I want to shout out if, if I can shout out someone and that is my DZO Danny Smith, my mm. friend 
the guy that really gave me a chance when nobody would give me a chance and and really you know said hey i, I don't have much to offer you but if you want to work manifest i mean that's really where it started i started a manifest nice and boy i'll tell you dean i remember on many uh a november early december i usually go home for 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 the for the winter period but you know, just going, gosh, what, what just sort of daydreaming when it was so cold and the drop zone was empty going, we, this place has so much potential. And I, and Danny so trusted me, but most of all gave me an opportunity. And he's one of those guys that maybe not everyone in the industry knows, but should know. I mean, he's mm. been running a drop zone since 1986. And I can say, having been behind the scenes with him in the trenches during my time there and after, the running a drop zone is so hard. Oh yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It is. You know, for those that are listening who think maybe DZOs are raking in money hand over fist, uh, some out there may have comfortable lives, but it has come at a cost. Mm. Between you know sleepless nights of because you know so many drop zones are cash flow based. You know, it's. I often say there's nothing worse than losing three weekends to bad weather. And still having net thirty day terms on your fuel bill, you oh, know, yeah. when you've had five thousand gallons delivered at, you know, multiple dollars per gallon, uh, that is a pressure and a weight that sits on you, you know, and that's not even, and that then that's just normal. Sure, that's not taking into account, you know, losing a hot section on on an aircraft or, um, uh you know a fatality and oh yeah you know, well, having the the world scrutinize your, your drop zone so oh man it's not for the faint of heart and i just want to give big credit and thanks to to danny smith because he's done so much for me and countless skydivers sure and i you know and he's one of those guys maybe behind the scenes that that i'm just so grateful for well and and the thing too with uh, with the DZOs is that even when everything is running smoothly and the business side of things are running smoothly they still have to deal with us like it's yeah. still you still have to go to work every day and manage skydivers and i love this community but part of the reason i love this community is because we're fucking nuts like people that work full time in skydiving each one of them you have to learn to navigate their personality and navigate their motivations in order to get the most out of them. Me just as much as everyone else, you know, again, I'd like to think that I'm a pretty good jump pilot, but I'm shit at paperwork and DZOs want good paperwork, but I'm horrible at it. Always have been, always will be to the point where I just don't give a fuck. My response was always, if I'm turning really fast loads for you and I'm helping you make the money, you can put up with the mistakes which is a dick move on my part, agreeably so. But that was one of the things that every DZO I've ever worked with has had to navigate with me. All right, first off, Princess can be an asshole at times, and he sucks at paperwork, but he's a fast jump pilot. So, all right, I'll deal with it. And you know that going into it. So, But it's not just me. It's me and then the instructors and the camera flyers and the packers and manifest. And, oh, my Lord, to deal with a whole group of skydivers. <laughs> You know, I was, let me be real, you know, I have a good reputation in, in the sport. And, you know, for those that saw the evolution of, of part of my role at, at Skydive Carolina, not exclusively me by any means, but I was not a popular drop zone manager at all. You know, I often felt like I was somewhat of a principal of, of a high school and I was trying 
you know, to, <laughs> uh, you know, bring everyone's grades up. And, you know, that was met with a lots of resistance naturally. Sure. And where, where it gets tricky, right, is most organizations, not to get too businessy here, but when you put together a team, whether it's a management team or, or, or what have you, you know, there is a culture that you need to build. There needs to be a culture fit mm. where personalities are working with each other as a team. And for me that wanted to be very service focused, you know, you're, you're, it's not like you can easily handpick, you know, because this is a very specific skill set that's needed. And a lot of people are coming into the sport with completely different backgrounds and, and exposure to different things and their perception of service from one person to another may be completely different. And at the end of the day, this guy, James LeBarry, is a, just a buzzkill, man. I mean, just <laughs> cool out. Like we we are here to have fun. Let us have our fun. And, you know, I I was, you know, trying, you know, to 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 bring everyone's grades up and and I, I wasn't the most popular guy. Uh, and I get it. Completely yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I there's definitely people out there that can't stand me as a jump pilot because I could be quite the taskmaster. I wanted shit done in a safe manner and and uh, go figure. I could be a bit abrasive in the way I might <laughs> approach someone on things. But I was also the first one to go. Sorry if I was a little over the top or the first one to buy the round of drinks, um, especially if it's in a situation where it got heated or I got out of line. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the one thing that I do miss about what I feel is the good old days of skydiving. The glory days was you could blow up and lose your shit and apologize around the bonfire and it was forgotten the next day. And now it is a very political uh, arena that we're in, in a lot of places. And the, the uh, um, transgressions of uh, previous days don't go uh, to the wayside quite so quickly, um, which yeah. I understand. I get it. You know, uh, uh, I do completely understand. Um, it also, again, you start pining for the good old days, but the good old days are happening right now for some other group. So no doubt, you know, no you doubt, know. you know, we, we you and I, have you've got a little gray and i've got little to no hair and you know, <laughs> mine's going quick too <laughs> get, get off my lawn those were the good old days but mm -hmm. as you as you say you know it, it is a new era a new generation is 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 loving this sport and you know part of the the thing about the community is you know i, I often looked at it like this is there's a lot of dysfunction in our community mm. just as there is in life and where you sometimes see that compound is, you know, there's this phase where people that go to drop zones are trying to get away from their traumas, their hurts, you know, whatever is going on in their lives, and they find freedom. Hey, you know, like my life is crazy, and then I feel present when I leave the aircraft. Sure. And I haven't felt this level of peace or happiness in years and that's like such a big draw to skydiving oh yeah but then we land and then you know when you have all of that and i'm not saying this is everyone by any stretch but it's it i have observed that you know then when we get around the bonfire and, and that you've had a few drinks and you know the high of the jump comes down and and do that year and year and year after year after year after year with the same people you're going to get some drama. 
Oh, you sure. Know what I mean, so uh, it's but it's part of the fabric. It's part of the beauty. It's part of the ugly. It's it's all of it. And that oh, is yeah. what makes our community so dynamic, so unique, such a pain in the ass, <laughs> such a such an amount of beauty as well. You know, we're all so beautifully flawed, um, you know, oh, yeah. why do we don't kill each other, uh, you know, through the journey? Oh, absolutely. The the uh, the uh, harsh side, the uh, potentially ugly side of skydiving always attracted me just as much as the pretty side of it. Right. I mean, it's it's uh, mm. it's that constant running soap opera because we are such passionate people. If you've chosen to and become a skydiver, you've got some passion in you without a doubt. Uh, I don't know a single skydiver that isn't passionate, regardless of how they show it. Hey. And for for a lot of us, we're over the top passionate about everything not just jumping um and that can make for some really wild shows i i have received as a drop zone manager a death threat in the mail uh i have been in fisticuffs over you know an rv slot uh you know yep yep <laughs> it's that's part of the ride well, you know, and I mean, uh, again, it's part of it. I don't think uh, I know that moving forward, it's not ever going to be quite like it was in that fashion, mm -hmm. only because it 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 is a dramatically different world than it was when I started 28 years ago. Uh, and I came to that realization probably seven years ago, flying in the desert in Dubai, when a relatively newer jumper standing around a group watched uh, Omar Al-Hijalan walk away and then asked, so who was that guy? And I just scratched my head going, Jesus Christ, this guy does not know who the guy who helped invent everything he's learning how to do is. Okay, it's a different game. I get it. And it kind of washed over me that, oh, all right, I'm I'm kind of irrelevant when it comes to jumping. I'm just another face in the crowd. And so is Omar Al-Hijalan. So I feel okay about that, you know? You know, when people don't know who Olaf Zipser is, you're kind of like, oh, Jesus Christ. That's like <laughs> not knowing who's, who Edmund Hillary is, <laughs> you know? You know, and, and just to say something there is Omar, Craig Girard, and others like these guys are what make our sports so great because mm. these guys are the most positive human beings I've ever met who treat you like the star. Yeah. Even though they are the star. Oh, yeah. Um, I look up to those guys so much. Oh, you and I both. And and it's kind of funny. And I've told this story a billion times on the podcast. Greg was probably one of the, he was definitely one of the first 10 guests that I ever had on the podcast. So before it had gotten, gained any traction whatsoever, anybody knew anything about it. Craig didn't hop on a Zoom link with me. Craig had to get in a car and drive through Dubai traffic to sit in a fucking in your toilet with me. Yes, yeah. I literally. I'm I, I listened to that interview. It was great. Oh, my God. And it was so wonderful. I'm literally in that interview. I'm sitting on a toilet talking to Craig Girard. And the entire time we're having this wonderful conversation, I am very aware that I'm sitting on a toilet talking Scott I mean, to Craig Girard. And Omar Al-Hijnal and all these people that I got to come sit in a toilet with me to talk about skydiving. And it just, uh, uh, it warms your heart, really. It really, really does. You're like, these people don't need to spend any time. And even now, almost five years into the podcast, it's easier for me to get guests on. But I'm never not surprised at the willingness that I have with people, big and small names in the sport that are willing to 
take time out of their schedule to sit and talk about the shit that they've just been doing all day and are going to go do all day tomorrow. It's really it's, it's humbling. And and with those guys, too, it makes you. Well, I feel like this is a line out of Jerry Maguire makes me want to be a better man. I mean, <laughs> they they you know, I, I want to be that positive. Yeah, and I want to lift up people the way that they do, uh, and have their humility as they go about doing big things. Like, hey, I'm a, I'm the most decorated skydiver probably in history, and I'm sitting in a bathroom with with Dean. Oh, yep, you know, having <laughs> fought uh, Dubai traffic. I mean, you know, not everyone does that. No, it's well, awesome. and the great thing about it is, I guarantee that that never crossed Craig's mind. He never thought, mm-hmm. "I can't believe I'm going to go sit in a bathroom and talk to some no name about all the incredible stuff that I've done." He literally just thought, "I'm going to go have a cool conversation with a guy I know." He's a beautiful person. Yeah, yeah. which is amazing. All of totally. them, are. it really is. So, speaking of, uh, as we're winding down, I wanted to hear about um, what uh, um, spurred your interest in starting a podcast yourself and tell me a little bit about the show that you've got going. Hey, thank you for allowing me that plug. Uh, yeah, my podcast is called The 20 Minute Call. Perfect name, by the way. It's, it's, thank you. Thank you. Although most people, you know, it's if not I'd a great marketing. If I'd have thought of it, that's what I would have fucking named it. I, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, God damn it. I, I should have thought of that. <laughs> I felt like the name would resonate with all skydivers, no matter what. We all know about the 20-minute call. Uh, but uh, you know what? I started, this is my second podcast. The first podcast I started was really before podcasting was really a thing. It was in like 2007. And I did what was called Skydive Carolina Radio. And I was bringing... Uh, whenever we bring load organizers through for our various events, Craig and Eliana were some of my mm. early guests. Scott Miller was an early guest of mine back then. So it has been in my heart for a few years to start this. And Melissa Nelson used to work for my agency for four years. We had, you know, still do have a wonderful relationship. And during that time, you know, I'd expressed to her, I'd love to to put together a podcast. And we talked about actually her and I doing it together. And then when she got to be a national director, you know, she became a little too busy and, you know, moved on from our agency. But it it has been just marinating. And finally, I was like, I want to do this. And I'm I'm only going to do this with not paying attention to the downloads as much as I just want to talk to the people I'm curious about. Mm. That the people that I've known in the sport but, you know, as it is at any drop zone, hey, I know Craig Gerard, but only in passing, because if you've ever been to a drop zone with Craig or Ileana or, or Dan BC or anyone is, is they're sort of like celebrities, not sort of, they are celebrities in our sport where they'll walk 10 steps and then they're intercepted. Always. And then when that, that, you know, and then you've got people sort of hanging around to get that next conversation. And I've, I've been wanting to dig in with people i'm curious about whether they're a big name or not as well known i just like the way they go about their business and i want to know why they go about their business the way that they do sure. and so um yeah i i started the, the 20 minute call podcast about uh two and a half months ago and you know so far the feedback's been positive and um well yeah, i mean it's been so much fun it literally gives us the greatest excuse in the world to talk shit and shop about skydiving, right? It really is. And especially when you've got names like that and you have access through um, your years and reputation in the sport to the people that you really want to talk to, it just makes it an 
absolute joy. You know, I mean, uh, I'm I'm sure you know, there's not a lot of money in podcasting. <laughs> I've noticed this. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, uh, it's definitely an out of pocket kind of thing. You know, I mean, yeah. I didn't build this studio because I needed a badass recording studio. I built it because I spend a lot of time in here talking to a bunch of skydivers, you know. Uh, um, so it's it's definitely not something you do as a professional choice unless you're Joe Rogan or, or somebody like that. Yep. Um, you do it because you absolutely love it and have a blast doing it. And I thought this would be. A, a, a short-term project and like maybe I'll do this for a year and five years into it and I, no desire to slow down even if I had zero sponsorship on the podcast it's not going anywhere because I want to do it it's it yeah yeah yeah, I don't think for those that are listening there's a lot more to this podcasting thing than meets the <laughs> eye between the expenses of getting you know good microphones and subscriptions to you know, you're recording like in, in your case with Zoom, I, I use a different one. Uh, but then, you know, the thing that pushes it out and then uh, the editing time is, is not small. I out, I have a, a, a friend um, who I pay to edit mine because I just don't have the time and that adds up. But uh, at the end of the day, as I say to my wife, I'll be like, oh, this is this is expensive, but yeah. it's my hobby. I'm really loving it. So, oh, yeah. You know, we all work so hard. I'm I'm going to enjoy this hobby. Absolutely. Well, and and I'm uh, we're very lucky that we're doing it in a time where people around the world are so easily accessible. You know, I went from Dubai, which, considering most of my guests were from the states, um, made it problematic if it was only people in Dubai. And now I literally live on the tip of the woods in Finland. So without Zoom, <laughs> end the show. That's it. You know, it's always kind of interesting when I'm trying to arrange times and I tell people, well, I'm recording out of Finland now. And half of the time, it's no response. And the other half, it's a, you're where? <laughs> yeah, I would like to ask you formally to be on my podcast because I want to know how uh, your journey of how you get to Finland. Yeah, anytime, uh, man. Uh, fascinating. Um, I, uh, I would be absolutely pleased to, to hop on board. Uh, like a lot of skydivers, I don't mind talking about my shit. <laughs> <laughs> awesome speaking well, uh, of while i'm thinking about it you're gonna need to hook me up with your dzo because it sounds to me like he's got a story to tell and i'd love to share it he does i will definitely get you hooked up he's he's a he's a really good southern gent awesome uh, that uh that's worked hard to do it right awesome no i mean honestly uh we talked about this uh pre-podcast pre-recording uh, I don't care who I have on the podcast as long as I think that they've got something fun to tell, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a, a hundred jump wonder or somebody with 20,000 skydives in every accolade there is. I like the story behind it. And uh, um, I think both our podcasts get to the core of I want to know as much what motivates someone to skydive as what they do when they jump. Mm. So yeah. um, tell us, how do we find you on social media? How do we find the podcast? What's the best way to download it? Uh, when are the shows out? All that stuff. Yeah. So the podcast, once again, it's called The 20-Minute Call. It comes out every Monday, uh, basically every Monday at midnight. So it's a weekly show. Um, and you can find it on all major podcast channels, you know, that the most that you would subscribe to. Um so yeah, otherwise you can follow me on Instagram at Amaze the Customer uh, or on Facebook as James LeBarry. Awesome. Uh, um, so yeah. James, it's 
been an absolute pleasure catching up with you this evening. I know you're uh, you're just getting started with your day. Uh, I, on the other hand, have a coffee mug that's not filled with coffee. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's been I a mean, great. Please I imagine your coffee. Ta- I imagine your coffee tastes a little bit better than mine right now. Yeah, it's got a little <laughs> bit more kick to it. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. Uh, but regardless, man, it was a real pleasure catching up with you. I'm going to look forward to the weekly show coming out and uh, uh, really enjoy seeing what comes next. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. James, you take care. Cheers. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By FlyAway Indoor Skydiving, go to FlyAwayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available, hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.